Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. Corey Tenboom said, When I think of Christmas Eves, Christmas feasts, Christmas songs, and Christmas stories, I know that they do not represent a short and transient gladness. Instead, they speak of a joy unspeakable and full of glory. God loved the world and sent his Son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. That is Christmas joy. That is the Christmas spirit. Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. What is Christmas? How might Christmas be observed in the home? Joining us today to discuss observing Christmas in the home is Mr. Justin Benson. Mr. Benson serves as president of Wittenberg Academy and also teaches vocation and stewardship for Wittenberg Academy. Mr. Benson, thank you for joining us today. Christmas is perhaps the season of the church year that is most claimed by the world, at least by outward appearances. They have the lights, the trees, and the music going by the end of October sometimes, and certainly by Thanksgiving. At a 50,000-foot level, how is the Christmas that the church observes different from the Christmas, air quotes around that Christmas, that the world observes? The church observes her feasts starting with a fast. So the, the two chief feasts of the church, Christmas and Easter, are preceded by a time of fasting. Whereas the world jumps right into the feasting and as soon as the actual day arrives, it's time to put away the decorations, put the leftovers away, and move on with life. So we in the church are in, in a period of fasting for, for four weeks as we anticipate Christmas. And we ponder lots of things that are, that are fairly significant and things that we as the elect, we as the faithful should be pondering and things that the world does not want to ponder, the world does not want to think about. And namely, that is the coming of our Lord on the last day. So as we get into Christmas, we start our celebration on December 25th or after the sun goes down on December 24th, which really is the, the beginning of Christmas. And then we, we observe this for 12 days. And our observance uh, includes feasting, but includes pondering some other tough things, as we'll get into uh, here shortly, <clears throat> as we ponder Christmas. So the, the church's observance of Christmas, Christmas is 12 days. So you've got the, the kind of fun Christmas carol, the 12 days of Christmas, that actually is based on something real. Christmas goes from December 25th through January 5th. Uh, December 25th being the first day of Christmas and January 5th being the 12th day of Christmas. You can just count up, up those days. And in order for us to really fully observe those 12 days of Christmas, it's very important that we observe Advent in advance. So the church jumps right into the Christmas celebration on the evening of December 24th or the Christmas midnight uh, mass or divine service. And I've seen some Roman Catholic sources call this the Angel Mass. Uh, and part of the reason for that is uh, there actually are three divine services for Christmas. Very few of our churches observe all three. We combine two two into one. Uh, so we generally combine, have two services. So we have Christmas Eve 
and Christmas Day. But historically, there were three. So Luke 2 would be broken into two different readings. So you'd start out reading Luke 2, 1 through 14, which is the angels proclaiming to the shepherds and ending with the Gloria and Excelsis. And then on Christmas morning, we'd finish reading Luke 2, Luke 2, 15 through 20, is where the shepherds actually let us go to Bethlehem and see the child, is where that would end. But interestingly, on Christmas Eve or Christmas midnight, the introit starts from a passage from the Apocrypha, the Book of Wisdom, chapter 18, verses 14 and 15. When all was still and it was midnight, your almighty word, O Lord, descended from the royal throne. So this is where we get the midnight mass. This is where it came upon a midnight clear. Lo, how a rose air blooming has midnight phraseology in it. So this is where the church gets the, the, the concept of midnight in the middle of the night. So some churches are pretty hardcore and they'll actually have the service late enough where it, it at least part of the service goes into, into midnight after, after 12, 12 a.m. But, you know, we're Americans and we want to be convenient. So we generally have this earlier in the, in the night, which is fine too. So we might have a seven or 8 p.m. service. I, I think it's very discouraging to see churches having 2 p.m. or 3 p.m. services. So to make things more convenient for families, because I, I'm, I'm just kind of torn on that because I think it sets the wrong priorities, but that is not for me to decide, I guess. But that's the Christmas midnight service. And this is where um, a lot of churches love candlelight services. You have to sing Silent Night. That's the, the unwritten rule to, to candlelight. We'll talk about hymnody a little bit later, I think, in terms of Christmas hymnody. So the Christmas dawn service, which is pretty rare in our, our day, that reading is just done on Christmas Eve. Uh, but that's what we call the Shepherd's Mass, where we focus in on the shepherds going to, to Bethlehem. And as you're teaching your children in your homes and that sort of thing, it's it's good to break Luke 2 up into uh, two or three pieces and actually sit down and actually study it and focus on the words. We hear this so often that we just glaze over it. We don't actually ponder the words of Scripture. This is the Word of God um, about our, our Lord's coming into this world. And then finally is the Christmas Day Divine Service. And that we go to John 1. And really the Christmas Eve service with Luke 2 is Earth's Earth's viewpoint of the of the incarnation. Heaven comes to earth, uh, both our Lord becoming man, but also the angels coming down and proclaiming this. And then the shepherds are the first witnesses, other than Mary and Joseph, to the to the to the child. But Christmas Day, where we focus on John 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us tells heaven's side of the story. So we get to hear heaven's side of the story at the, at the final uh, Christmas uh, divine service, the nativity of our Lord divine service, which is kind of an interesting phenomenon that that's, that's what's read, but it uh, is important that, that we observe those services and hear those readings and hear the preaching on those. So there's so much joy in the incarnation of our Lord that the church has historically celebrated three divine services for Christmas, for the nativity of our Lord. So that's just the first day of Christmas. We, we continue on. We have 12 more days, so we have lots more to think about. 
And after this initial joy that we have, the joy does continue, but we have to remember why Jesus came into the world. And it gets pretty bloody after that first day. And we have to remember that this Jesus is the Lamb of God. And we think about the Advent 4 gospel reading from John about behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. So we have three martyr days, December 26th, 27th, and 28th, right after Christmas. And December 26th is St. Stephen Day, the very first martyr recorded in the book of Acts. So your liturgical colors on Christmas Day are going to be either white or gold. Well, they're going to change to red the next day if your church observes this, this divine service. So Stephen was a martyr in will and deed. And then St. John, the apostle and evangelist, is observed on December 27th. So it goes back to white because John did die a peaceful death according to church tradition. John was a martyr in will. He did not achieve martyrdom by deed but he was willing to. And then finally, on December 28th, it goes back to red on the on these three martyr days. Remember the holy innocence of Bethlehem, the young children who were killed by King Herod because he was bloodthirsty and power hungry, and he did not want this Jesus to take over his kingdom. These holy innocents were not martyrs of will because they were still babies, but they were martyrs indeed. So we go from white or gold, and then we go to red, and then we go to white, and then we go back to red. Those first four days of Christmas, and we, and we really ponder this, this concept of martyrdom and uh, witness to our Lord's incarnation. As we continue through the season of Christmas, we have the Sundays. And the first Sunday after Christmas, and it kind of depends on which day of the week uh, Christmas falls on. We don't always observe these Sundays as they are because there might be a, a feast day that falls on Sunday. Some years Christmas falls on a Sunday. So then uh, January 1st also would fall on a Sunday. And then some years we don't get that second Sunday of Christmas just because of the way Christmas Day falls. Because 12 days is not quite two full weeks. So the Sunday after Christmas, we continue reading through Luke 2. And this is where Jesus is presented at the temple to Simeon and Anna who are both old, who are both waiting for the consolation of Israel, and they get to see Jesus before they die. And this is where we get the great Nuke Dominus, which is our post-communion canticle in, in many of our Lutheran churches, uh, which is just perfect for that. Uh, that is a Lutheran innovation in the divine service, which is a, a great innovation. We, we at Wittenberg Academy aren't really about the innovations, but that's a good one. We like that one. But... Simeon tells Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And you have to disconnect this with the, the crucifixion of our Lord. Uh, certainly Mary remembered this uh, when she saw her son, her son and Savior on the cross dying. And then on January 1st, which is the octave of Christmas, or the eighth day of Christmas, we have the shortest gospel reading of the year, again in Luke 2, which is the, the verse between our Christmas Eve reading from Luke 2, Luke 2, 1 through 20. And after this is the, the account of Jesus being presented at the temple. So the circumcision stuck right in the middle. And it's kind of odd, if you want to talk about differences between how the world celebrates Christmas and how we do, we gather on New Year's Day, January 1st, 
and we hear a reading from the scriptures about how a boy had his foreskin cut off and was named. So if you want to talk about distinctions, there there is one. So, but again, this is the first time our Lord sheds blood, right? This this bloody theme that we continue to to hear throughout the uh, twelve days of Christmas. And then the second Sunday after Christmas, we go to the book of Matthew, the flight to Egypt. Uh, Jesus is Israel, Israel reduced to one. And we have to remember that, you know, we're part of the church militant. And actually a lot of the historic hymnody of this time of the year is from uh, that, that section of the hymnal. Uh, we need to be watchful and aware. We have enemies in this world and we're not at home here. And neither was our Lord. So that's kind of in a nutshell of of how the the church celebrates Christmas. So there's a lot of a lot of celebrating, a lot of a lot of observing in the church, and your congregation may not observe all of these days every year, but certainly they celebrate several of them. So it's it's good to to start our our piety in in the Lord's house with our family in Christ there. So historically, thinking about the celebration of Christmas both in the church, but also as we see the church observing Christmas in the world, if that makes sense, chronologically through time. Tell us just a little bit about that. Historically, the observance of the nativity of our Lord didn't really start in the church until about the fourth century. So right after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, the early Christians observed the resurrection of our Lord immediately. So it took some time to start observing Christmas. And, and you think about it, there were, you know, we had the Arian heresy during this time and the development of the creeds we use in the church because there was a lot of questioning whether Jesus was fully God and fully man. So the observance of Christmas naturally came from this. But before Christmas was observed, the Annunciation of our Lord was observed. The day when the angel announced to Mary that she was pregnant with our Lord. And in those days in antiquity, it was thought that a great prophet was conceived the same day that he died. Not the exact same day, but the same date. So March 25th was was marked as the day that Jesus died on Good Friday, according to some. Uh, that's not in the scriptures, but there is some evidence that that is the case. So naturally, nine months later is December 25th. So that's when Christmas has been observed for, for almost 1,500 years or for more than 1,500 years. Christmas is an up-and-down history in its relationship with the world. So as Christianity becomes legal in Europe, it becomes the official religion in Europe, it really has a, a strong tie to a lot of the cultural things that are going on. It's a holiday. People don't work that day on December 25th, and that's still the case in the United States. But there have been up and down histories. The Reformation really brought Christmas back or raised it up in the, in the minds of God's people. Luther loved Christmas. You can see a lot of the Christmas hymns that were penned by by Lutheran theologians, including Luther, Paul Gerhardt, and others. 
But then Christmas was illegal in England and New England for a time during the 17th century. I think the Puritans did not like observing feast days. They did not like anything that looked Roman Catholic, so they just got rid of it, which was very sad and unfortunate. But it was brought back later by, by the English, and you can see a lot of the English hymns that we are very familiar with were written after, after this time period and adopted by many parts of the church. Also, as German immigrants came into the United States, Lutherans, they really brought their Christmas traditions in, and a lot of the Christmas traditions we have come from our German Lutheran uh, forefathers coming into the United States. So the church has, rightly, a very rich history of observing the incarnation of our Lord. And you brilliantly walked us through those. What are some of the ways that we can bring these observances of the church into the home? Yeah, that's a good question. There are a lot of things we do in the home at Christmas. And I'm sure many of you who are listening to this have their traditions, your family traditions, the, the foods you make for Christmas. You certainly have special foods that you make that you don't have normally throughout the year. And a lot of times we gather with family. We see people that we may not have seen throughout the year or a lot. And we're observing the incarnation of God. So we do these things that are very incarnational. We, we eat food. We gather with people. We're recording this in 2020, and we have these orders from governors, public health officials, and all the other so-called experts telling us that we can't gather with family at Christmas time. And that's non-essential and, and whatever. I think that's gobbledygook. If that's not essential, then what is? I'm not sure. But we are incarnational beings. We have bodies. We're meant to be together. We're not meant to be alone. Our Lord came into this world bodily. He didn't come in through a Zoom meeting or anything like that. So gathering and getting together is is one of those things that we can do and we should do, making special foods. But there also are things that that we can do in our homes in terms of you know, we, we decorate our homes differently, right? The Christmas tree. We talked about our German Lutheran forefathers who came here. They're the ones who brought the Christmas tree over. And that was very controversial when they did, especially when they put the Christmas tree in churches. That was That was very, very controversial, but very natural to them. And it's kind of an interesting thing. We bring a dead tree into our house and, and wrap lights. It used to be candles and put decorations on it and that sort of thing. Now we have trees that are made out of plastic and metal because they're not fire hazards or don't cause allergic reactions to those who have allergies, etc., which is fine. But the tree is very central to the scriptures, right? We have the tree of life. We have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. And then the tree that our Lord died on the cross. So the tree is very, very good and in, in putting light on it. It does have a lot of symbolism that shows us the light of Christ who, who died on the tree. And you also look at the greenery. Greenery represents life. There's other forms of greenery in terms of flowers and, and other plants that are sometimes popular at Christmas time. But greenery is always good in the house to, to show that everlasting life of Christ and the growth of the church that he provides and those sorts of things. So a Christmas tree is good. 
we like to put ours up as close to Christmas Day as we can. I know life sometimes gets busy this time of the year, so it doesn't always work to just put it up on December 24th. But if you can wait to put that up a little bit, that's always good. There's no law around that or no rule, but or even just waiting to turn the lights on until it gets closer to Christmas. We like to keep ours up until February 2nd, until the, the purification of our Lord and the presentation of Mary is observed the 40th day of Christmas. Another thing you can do is put up a creche or a nativity scene. It might be good to put multiple uh, nativity scenes up in your house to, to commemorate our Lord's coming into this world, uh, to see that he came in as a baby. And this is the one thing, one area where Protestants are completely okay with iconography and statues is pretty common for most Americans to have nativity scenes. And we can put nativity scenes in our yards too. So sometimes it's controversial with city halls or governments putting up nativity scenes, and those have been removed in a lot of places as the United States becomes more secular. But if every one of us Christians would just put one up in our front yard, there'd be a lot of them up. So, so let's do that if we can. It's always good to read the scriptures in your homes. Read those first two chapters of Luke and of Matthew. You can read them as we anticipate Christmas. And you can read them during the 12 days of Christmas. But slowly go through those two accounts and you kind of see the, the different visits to our infant Lord and our, our young Lord laid out there. You can see the perspective of Mary, the perspective of Joseph as they prepare for our Lord to be born and come into this world. We have angels throughout these passages. They're great. They should be known very well by all of us Christians, and, and we should be reading those. And then, what would Christmas be without the caroling and the singing? And we as Lutherans have just a fantastic tradition of hymns. Sadly, our hymns aren't as well known as the hymns that were mostly written in England, or in other parts of Europe. And we as Lutherans probably know those better than our own Lutheran hymns. But I'd like to talk about a few of, of our hymns with you today that, you know, maybe this year is a good year to get to know those, especially if you maybe aren't gathering with as many family members during Christmas, or as you continue to observe the, the 12 days of Christmas, or continue to sing them through the 40 days, all the way to the purification of, of Mary. The first hymn I'd like us to look at is hymn 358. This hymn was written by Luther. And the two most popular German Christmas hymns or Christmas carols are, we all know Silent Night, right? That's one of them. And it's, that's the most popular hymn in America that was written in German. But the hymn that Luther wrote was actually for a Christmas pageant. He used it in his home. And some of our churches sing this on Christmas Eve. From heaven above to earth I come. It has 15 stanzas, and it, it can be broken up with the first five sung by one person, and then the other children would join in singing the, the 6 through 15, the other 10 stanzas. We have a book uh, called Christmas Spirit written by George Grant and Gregory Wilbur, and they actually, it actually does a very nice job of taking different uh, traditions from various places in Europe and the United States of, of Christmas and pulling them together. So it has a lot of references to some of these hymns that are from our Lutheran tradition in it even. The description of From Heaven Above to Earth I Come. Although this carol is internationally recognized as one of the two most famous Christmas songs from Germany, it remains virtually unknown in 20th century English-speaking countries. 
This represents Martin Luther's limited output of Christmas carols. Despite the fact that he translated several carols from Latin into German, this remains his only completely original carol. It is likely that Luther wrote this carol for a Christmas Eve ceremony that included Luther's son, Hans. Seven verses were sung by a man dressed as an angel, and the remaining verses were sung in response by children. The verses were published in 1535 and then again in 1539 with a different tune. There have been 15 to 20 different attempts at translation with Catherine Winkworth's as the best effort. So this is a great hymn to sing in the home. Hymn 360 in LSB, All My Heart Again Rejoices, or it used to be translated as All My Heart This Night Rejoices, is a very common Christmas Eve hymn in our churches. Another hymn that maybe would be a good one to commit to memory. This was written during a difficult period in Paul Gerhardt's life. Soon after he had been ejected from his pastorate for political reasons, his wife and four children died. He went with the, his one remaining child to a small parish in Lubin, Germany, where he continued his preaching and hymn writing until his death in 1676. Despite this period of hardships, Gerhardt was still able to write about a rejoicing heart. This hymn has an overall triumphant tone, and it's, it's quite remarkable. I think the most sublime of all the Christmas hymns we have was a hymn that was written long before the Reformation and was inherited by the church. But that is Of the Father's Love Begotten, written in Latin, translated by John Mason Neal. It's a haunting carol. John Mason Neal also translated the text for O Come, O Come, Emmanuel and several other Latin hymns. Rarely in one carol does an author encompass the entirety of the redemption story from creation, the prophets, the nativity, and the eternal glory of the triune God. But Spanish poet Prudentius skillfully weaves the redemptive narrative throughout the verses of this fine poem. Consequently, these lyrics are also dense with theology of the sovereignty of God and his perfect oversight of history. Prudentius was a well-educated lawyer, judge, and chief of Emperor Honorius's imperial bodyguard. He exchanged all of his worldly success for spiritual contemplation when he entered a monastery late in life. It took someone like the English clergyman John Mason Neal, a Greek and Latin scholar, to translate in, and adequately convey the power and poetry of the original text. So the hymn ends, each stanza ends with evermore and evermore. The tune that's set with it is just, is just sublime. It is, it is the, in my opinion, the most beautiful of all of our Christmas hymnody. So that's, that's where we, we have to finish <laughs> talking about Christmas hymns. But we have all the, all the ones that, that you know, that you're very familiar with, the, the ones that were written in English originally. And sing those two, sing them all, sing them all multiple times. But these three that I that we talked about today, I think, are stand out in my mind as as the best, the very best of the Christmas hymns. Let's take a moment to hear a stanza or two of those hymns. From
the source, the ending here of the things that are that have been and that future you shall see evermore and evermore. So Calvin Coolidge, the same Calvin Coolidge who served as one of our presidents of the United States, said, the antiquary of tradition is the preserver of all that is right and good and true. It is the wisest of the most progressive of all the human impulses, for it guarantees continuity for the uncertain days of the future. Let every man and woman warmly embrace the lessons of the past. That's pretty good advice. So thinking about that in the context of Christmas, what are some of the other traditions that we might consider for our homes that help us keep Christmas the entire season and not just the 12 days of Christmas? Well, I think on Christmas Day, and, and a lot of the traditions, uh, many of you already do in your own homes, in your own ways that have been passed on for your from your family members over the years. But we go to the Lord's house on Christmas Eve, Christmas midnight, where we describe that, and then we go again on Christmas Day, and then we and then we come home, and we, and Lord willing, we're able to gather with with extended family, and we eat a we eat a feast. Traditionally in Europe, the the goose was the the Christmas meal. It's not so so in America as much, but maybe you have your ham or your turkey or or your cut of you know prime rib or whatever beef you may have or whatever the the meat you have at the center of your table and you eat special foods. And then, and then there's, there's a certain amount of exhaustion that has, has taken place. You've been in the Lord's house, you've been reveling in the mystery of the incarnation and there, there's time just to rest and, and let the Lord work uh, his word in us and, and have that time with, with family and, Maybe as the as the day draws nigh, we sing we sing Christmas carols. We we read the the account in Luke two again, and, and we do those sort of incarnational things on on Christmas Day. And it, it doesn't always turn out that way. And sometimes our lives are are messy, and things don't turn out the way way we want them to, and they don't turn out like the Martha Stewart way of doing things. And that's fine. And we know our Lord came to this world because we're broken. And we don't want to set the set the tone that Christmas is just perfect. I think there are high enough expectations already for it. But as we as we do these things in the home, we do want to keep in mind that that there are, there are things we do and foods we have to to keep to keep that that feast also in our homes to bring that out of the the doors of the church and into our homes. Singing uh, is is one of the ways we can do that as as we go through the 12 days of Christmas and even all the way through the season of Epiphany, it, it also is something that we can do is we can spread this stuff out. Maybe, maybe you wait to bake one of your Christmas cookies until the third day of Christmas. Your children are in school. Maybe you have some time off from work on the world to stop celebrating. Well, we can keep celebrating 
we can make some of those treats for the eighth day of Christmas or the third day of Christmas or the sixth day of Christmas, whatever the case may be. But keep that celebration going. You also can open your gifts on different days. You don't have to open them on Christmas Day, but you can wait. Now, if you've already set the expectation for your children that you open them on Christmas Eve or something, it might be kind of difficult to change that. But there are ways that you can spread out the celebrating, continue the feasting and singing throughout throughout the 12 days of Christmas. Christmas has a lot of trappings. The world certainly tries to train us in the observance of the trappings, right? And the trappings can sometimes draw our focus away from the incarnation of our Lord. How can we both in the church and in our homes, how can we bolster our celebration so that it doesn't become primarily or at all about the trappings? That's a great question. And I suppose there's the, as we talk about observing these days in our home, we can, we can fall off the horse on making the trappings be, be the, the whole thing and the traditions we have in our homes and the observances we have in our homes are very important, but they may not, they're not the main thing and they're to support and confess the main thing. So the most important thing you can do, whether it's Christmas or whether it's Easter, whether it's Advent or whatever time of the year it is, go to church, go to the services that your local congregation offers as your vocations allow. And certainly, you know, go to the Sunday services, go to the Christmas Day and Christmas Eve services and schedule your family activities around those. So you're able to, to hear the preaching, hear the word, sing the hymns, receive the Lord's Supper. Christmas is broken into two words. It's Christ Mass. And it's very unfortunate that sometimes you see some people, I think, out of out of their own piety, but I think out of ignorance, cross out the word Mass or the, the part of the word that says M-A-S. Or they'll do all caps of Christ and then all small letters of Mass. But we keep Christ in Christmas by keeping the Mass in Christmas. And, and going and hearing the word proclaimed and receive the sacrament and gather with our family in Christ, with the Holy Family. So go to church. Let your family activities be a priority, but not the main priority. And as we, as we get older and as we think about holidays, sometimes Christmas becomes kind of a disappointment. We think about things when we were younger and we always think about the much more positive things. And as we get older, there are there are people who who were with us on Christmas years ago, and maybe last year, maybe five years ago, who aren't with us anymore. They're in the church triumphant. And and we can go to the Lord's house and we can join the whole company of heaven and receive the Lord's Supper. And we can sing with Simeon, Lord let us now depart in peace in the Lord's house. So go to church. That's, that's, that's in a nutshell, go to church and then let your, let your family activities be, be a priority, but, but secondarily after you're observing, uh, of Christmas or any other holiday, 
in the church. Mr. Justin Benson serves as president of Wittenberg Academy. Justin, thank you for being here today. Thank you, and have a Merry Christmas. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour.